Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Today, it is my privilege to host Black Crow's co-founder, and in my mind, no disrespect, really the only drummer the Black Crow's ever had, Mr. Steve Gorman. Steve, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You are calling in from Nashville today, I believe. That's exactly right, sir. I've lived here since 2004. And I grew up about an hour north of here, so Nashville has been uh, familiar to me since I was 10 years old, and then it's been home for 15 years now. Now, I have a question for you. I, I read the book. We're going to talk about the book in, in a second, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. Now, I read it, and I saw that you made a reference to SCTV. How do you know about SCTV down there? Oh, I, I, was, I, I, I was watching SCTV clips on my phone last night with my brother. Um, <laughs> We found SCTV when it was on PBS, 30 minutes a night on Sunday nights when I was probably 12 or 13, and then it made the jump to the NBC show on Friday night. You know, I was a tiny kid in a small town in Kentucky who proudly went to school every Monday telling everyone Saturday Night Live sucked and SCTV was where it was at. (laughs) That's great. You don't hear that? You don't hear that a lot. I reference stuff from the old SCTV show on a very regular basis. And in fact, I have a question for you, which I love to ask and torture any Canadian I know with, which is if you're, you know, gun to your head, SCTV or Kids in the Hall? Oh, good question. Uh, I got to go with SCTV um, because of Bob and Doug. I love Bob and Doug. Oh, fair enough. But you, that's the easiest anyone's ever answered it. It's usually an existential meltdown on the other <laughs> end of the phone. So we, kudos it, to you, sir. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. I do love both. Kids in the Hall is hilarious, too, but uh, I got to go with SCTV. I, I, I used to watch it when I was a kid. When I was a little bit younger, so I got a soft spot for it. I understand. Yeah, we uh, we were really into the Kids in the Hall, too, and we were, we were very friendly with those guys. I, I still am. I'm in touch with them. And, but in the early 90s, the Black Crows and Kids in the Hall hung out a lot. No and, uh, and I can remember, like, as excited I was to meet them, the first night ever, we were in Atlanta in 91, and my wife and a buddy of mine ended up with the five kids and Norm Hiscock, the head writer at a bar for hours. Wow. And at some point it occurred to me, and I remember I looked over and I was talking with Bruce and I go, wait a minute, hold on a second. He goes, well, I go, have you met Eugene Levy? Like it hit me like, oh my God, <laughs> you might actually know the SCTV guys. And, and then it became their thing of like, oh, you're just using us to get to them. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's hilarious. Yeah. All right. So, Steve, the new book, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows. Great book. Uh, as a Black Crows fan from the get-go, I had a really hard time putting Thank it down. You. Really great job on that. Thank you very much. It's, uh, you know, for, for a big fan like myself, it's a bitter pill to swallow a little bit for somebody who finds the band as important as I do. But I got to tell you, it's an astounding glimpse into the inner workings of the band. And, and some of the stories are, are at times just flat out astonishing. You know, I'm thinking about the, the Jimmy Page snub, um, you know, yeah. Rich taking the band bus. Like it, the stories made me cringe, man. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I, you know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's all, there's a, a lot of things in the book. I've noticed that people who are really very attached to the band mm-hmm. often don't see the overall narrative. And to me, it's a book about people. It's a book about people and what people do to each other and for each other and with each other and what you're willing to put up with 
and it's a book about addiction and codependency. That, that's ultimately what it is. And the context, of course, is like you said, you're on a bus or you're on stage or in the studio. But ultimately, it, it, as much as I tell the story of Rich taking the bus, and it's easy to say, man, what's wrong with that guy? The, the obvious subtext is what's wrong with everyone else for <laughs> ever going back? What's wrong with me for not flying home and telling everyone to go to hell? Like, like the whole idea of, to me is that everybody was in a place where nobody was truly comfortable. The people who were ended up grabbing the power and controlling the shot were the absolute most miserable among us. No one was executing their master plan on a daily basis to success. And yet we still managed to do all the things we did. I mean, that's really what I find most fascinating about it. It's just what everybody brought to the table and what everybody left with and how varied those equations are for everybody in the in the whole picture. Yeah, well, like I say, I, I had a hard time putting it down. It's uh, it's a fantastic read. I thought you did a great job. I loved the ending. So Thank you. Well done. How's it doing? Thank it's, you very much. I'm sure it's doing all right. Uh, yeah, it is. Um, the, the publishers are, you know, it's funny. I don't know what they were expecting, but they're they're very surprised and happy. Y- you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, it's great to be underestimated in life, <laughs> generally speaking, anyway. And, uh, and, and as very true in the publishing world, like we were, we were, they were going to reprints. I mean, I, sometime in, I think it came out in September, sometime in November, I called and said, hey, I, can you send me another dozen copies? Mm-hmm. And it took about two weeks to get it. And when I called back to go, hey, where are the books? They were like, it's back or we're printing them as fast as we can. Like, they were caught unaware. And I, and I said from day one, look, you know, the Black Joes might not have the biggest fan base in the world, but the people who care really care. And there's probably going to be more sales initially than you're expecting. And that's been the case. And the word of mouth has been, been really strong. And then it, it's very well reviewed. I mean, I, I really... I, I, I would think by now I'd be aware if people were ripping it to shreds, and so far it doesn't seem anybody is, uh, other than the Robinson brothers themselves, of course. Oh, have you heard? Uh, I, I haven't read anything well, they're, about they're, that. they're making dismissive comments occasionally. They're, they're not saying much about it at all. They don't want to, obviously. But, um, but far more important than that is the fact that just about everybody else who is in the book, all the other band members, crew members, management, record company executives, you know, I mean, promo people, a lot of folks I haven't heard from in over 20 years, um, you know, are all unanimously very happy with the book. I mean, I've, I've gotten calls and messages on my Facebook from folks I haven't seen literally since the mid-90s saying, you know, how much it means to them to read that and, and how it gave them such a sense of closure. The, the reality is nobody, certainly myself included, nobody left that orbit feeling great about it. You know what I mean? Everyone yeah. had varying degrees of success putting the pieces back together. And, I, you know, and I, I, I got out great, but not the first time around. And I got the shit kicked out of me throughout, but it's all good now. But a lot of people didn't leave in good shape. And a lot of people thought they were kind of, you know, looking back. It's not a story that is easy to tell anybody. It's hard mm-hmm. to describe just how dysfunctional things can be. Because when you start talking about it, it's, you know, it's hard to do it without sounding bitter and angry. Yeah. And, and in fact, I, didn't, I, I wouldn't have written a book unless I realized, oh, I'm not bitter and angry anymore. Because I was angry for years, and I was bitter, and I did feel taken advantage of, and I was lied to. And I, but, you know, ultimately one day it's like, well, hang on, I did a lot of this myself. I mean, I, I can blame other people all day long, or why don't I get my shit together and really figure out what's going on here? So by the time the band ended, I had... Spend years into that perspective, 
And I was disappointed we didn't do the final tour, but I was thrilled that the Black Crows, uh, it needed to go away. Yeah. And so, you know, I've had, I've had six years now with the band in my rearview mirror, and it's been the six best years of my life. And that's not to diminish anything the band accomplished. I'm just grateful that I'm at a place where I'm taking advantage of my time and my talents and my abilities, et cetera, et cetera, and I feel great about everything I'm doing. And it was hard to feel great about anything we did when we were in the Black Crows. You know, music was great all day long, but even what we didn't, you know, you've read the book, it was just never an easy place to be yeah. uh, settled or feel content with about anything. Yeah, and, and you know what? I thought you did a great job of, of taking uh, an objective position and, and going back to what you're saying about potentially you know, being angry and, and bitter. That didn't come across at all. I appreciated the fact that you're very objective and, and that lended a little bit more credibility to the book, I found. Well, uh, and, and, it's, and like I said earlier, people, I was saying, people who are really attached to the band, they, they that, the, it's funny, I've been told, I've had people say to me like, wow, you know, I was angrier than I anticipated and my question, I, well, the first thing I want to say is, how many shows did you see? And it's usually like 90. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> like the people who feel it's an angry book are the ones who are really, really attached to every phase of the band's career. I think the more distance people have from their own um, emotional attachment, they can see that objectivity a little bit more. And they certainly understand more that I'm, I'm not too sparing on myself either in that regard. So, uh, but, you know, it's been fascinating to just, all the reactions from you know it's always interesting to me and you know if someone doesn't like the book or someone sees it I, i've been telling i've done a lot of book events so i'm talking about the book and the band a lot and i i say this a million times but i mean it whatever your opinion is you're right <laughs> you know like your favorite album might not be mine and you're right you're just as right as i am and <laughs> you know it's everybody everybody within the band has their own idea of what the black crows meant and so i wouldn't expect two fans to agree either yeah well, I think, you know, that's a good segue into what I was going to say next is that I've always said that the Black Crows, in my mind, were one of the most underrated rock bands the last 30 years. That's my opinion. And along those same lines, I've always thought that you, as a drummer, um, were underrated as well. There are times on those, on those records you know, where the drums impact the songs. Probably the best example is something like Hard to Handle. But there are other moments, particularly on, you know, Southern Harmony and Amorica, that may be overlooked just because of the melody of the hook of the song or whatever, but your drum parts are, are in fact very essential in achieving that overall feel that the songs have. And I, I want to say that Black Moon Creeping is, is, is an example of that. There's some vibey, intricate stuff going on in that tune. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I, didn't, I never approached it from a perspective of what can I do that's cool. I, I, it, my natural thought is always, what does the song need? And I really did approach... The role, I, anytime I'm drumming with anybody, my thinking is I'm just here to do all the stuff no one's paying attention to that makes everybody else better. <laughs> um, and, I, you know, I, and I approach that like the way I played basketball or the way I played soccer. You know, I was a sweeper in soccer my whole life. Yeah. And so every now and again I scored a goal. It was not what I went on the field to do. And I certainly could score. And I could have scored a lot more if I'd thought about that. But I, I, that's not my job. And in basketball, I played center, and this is before the three-point line. You know, I'm old, but <laughs> but I saw my job is get every rebound you can, block some shots when you can, uh, you know, set the tone, and have everybody back. You know, that's kind of how I approach drumming. It's like I can be flashy and do all kinds of stuff, but I just wanted the you know, I was trying to establish the vibe and the sense of what how the song feels at all times, and 
whatever that meant playing, the, the point was to get the feel right. And then whatever the actual part was, was almost secondary. I didn't, you know, that's how I always approached it. And, uh, you know, when, and, and the rhythm section in the Black Rose was me, Johnny, and Rich. You know, it was like the three of us mm-hmm. were the feel of the band, yeah. always. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that, that I always, you know, the, the last album of new music we made in 2009 is called Before the Frost. You know, some of my favorite drum tracks I ever played were on that album. Doesn't mean they're my favorite songs, and it's not necessarily the best Black Crow album by a long shot, but, but there, there's certain elements where people say, what's the quintessential Borman track? I, I think it's some of those sometimes, and it's like, you know, at War War Paint, those last two albums, there yeah. was, there's things that I was doing there that really, I think, exemplify how I approached my role in the band. Um, and again, I, you know, this is the most I've talked about this specific subject in years. No one else has ever asked me about it. So it's not something that's ever in the front of my mind. Well, I have one more question for you about it, if you don't mind. Sure. Wiser Time. One of my favorite all-time tunes. I love it. The double stroke on the cowbell in that tune. I, I remember having a conversation like years ago saying, I wonder whose idea it was to put that in there because it's, it's not conventional. It's kind of unorthodox to have that kind of double tap at the end of the signature, right? Yeah. I mean, I told the story in the book a little bit. I yeah. mean, you know, that's a great example of a band working as a band, which is I was just screwing around and, and I just added a cowbell for the first time ever. Yeah. And... And I started playing that beat, but really fast, like super frenetic. And I, you know, I remember thinking like, this is like a Devo beat or something, or like a, you know, a total, something you hear in a Kraftwerk song. Yeah. And Chris just jumped up and he goes, hey, slow that down, slow it down. And he said, that thing we were doing yesterday, which turned out to be wiser time, he said, play it underneath that verse. And he just connected those two things. And, and right away it, it clicked and I wasn't going to the cowbell every time I would do it sometimes on the snare sometimes on the rack tom it was the same pattern oh. but I was trying all the different sounds and I just kept thinking like man that cowbell because at first the cowbell it was too much like the cowbell every time was like way too much like ringing a loud bell but I was like no that's that's just kind of cool don't overthink this one and it, it fell into place right away and you know it was a it's Live, I think I would I would alter it some somewhat, you know, a little bit. But um, you know, that was just a great example of I wasn't thinking. You know, my my first thought was the cowbell's too much, get rid of it. And then I was like, no, it actually fits the tone of the song for some reason. Like, you know, again, I'm always trying to pull myself back. You know, the the, the key to great drumming is to overplay it and then remove all the crap you don't need. You throw it all on the table at first. And every time you play that new song, again, you play less and less and less and less, and then you find the right place. That's how I would go about it. Huh. And uh, and, with, and so that cowbell, I was trying to get rid of it, and I kept going, no, I think it actually works. You know, it just makes sense. Oh, it totally does. It, it, it adds so much distinction to the song. It's it's yeah. it's great. Yeah. yeah. And like, like I said, it's, it's a little bit unconventional, so it's cool. You know, one thing, uh, you know, thinking about Amorica, I was listening to that. I've, I've listened to it a lot more since I read your book, actually. It's just such a, it's probably my favorite Crows record. It's so vast and big, and, and I feel like you can kind of, you know, I could put myself inside it. It's, it's, yeah. just, it's a fantastic record. I was glad that you guys made, or remade rather, Downtown Money Waster on Crowology. I thought, I thought that version yeah. turned out great. Yeah, I don't remember even how we did it that time we did another version of downtown money waster in 97 on an album that was never released that was like an up-tempo rock and song and then it came out as part of the lost grows i think in 2006 but uh yeah it's funny because i don't even remember how we did it for chronology now that you say it 
It's uh, it's it's got kind of a southern, almost a bluegrassy feel. There's violins yeah. on it. It's cool. Yeah. 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 Choreology was. Uh, I I enjoyed those sessions, and I thought I thought it was really cool. But but it's it's the Black Rose album. I've definitely heard the least in my life because it was uh, you know, it was all it was reworking some old songs, and so it just I guess for whatever reason I. You know, in between the recording and the release, I wasn't ever putting it on, chopping in the car and listening down to it. Yeah. Steve, do you have uh, a favorite Crows record? I think Southern Harmony is the most, uh, I'd say that's the best album to me. Um, and I say that because it, I would say it's either Southern Harmony or Morica, and I go with Southern Harmony because Southern Harmony doesn't have any question marks. Yeah. Um, Whereas, whereas the Morica, I, I I didn't love that version of Downtown Money Waster, and I never cared for P Twenty Five London too much. Uh, my personal taste, I, I I thought that was a throwaway song. Um, and we had other songs at the time that were far more, you know, did, that I thought were fantastic. Um, common thing with the Black Rose was a lot of the songs that, a lot of the songs that I loved the most were never even put on albums. You know, we would we would record a lot of music. And I went to bat for things over the years. Um, and, and over time, some of the stuff that I look back and think is our strongest work was never even released. Yeah. But, you know, that's just, that's not to say the things we did release didn't work or weren't great. Um, but, but anyway, to answer your question, I'd say Southern Harmony because top to bottom, if you put it on, I think, I think it's just, I think it's the most solid. And plus, it was just such a special time you know to sort of say like hey that wasn't a fluke and in fact we're a lot better than the band that made shake your money maker that really meant a lot to all of us and it was by far the most cohesive and perfectly aligned everybody on the same page in the studio every day walk in it was like we were like of one mind for that entire album process so that was always pretty special to me that's what i was that's what i was always looking for as a guy that thinks of things in a team concept yeah and, uh, and it was never stronger than on southern harmony cool um going back to downtown money waster for a little bit so both versions are pretty different and i always wondered when i heard amorica's version it, it kind of sounds like you know there's maybe the influence of some <laughs> some chemicals going on in there but like just because yeah you know i wasn't there that's not i didn't play on that um, oh really that was uh johnny and i finished the album it was they were mixing the album yeah and Johnny and I had already gone back to Atlanta. And then I, I think Eric Bobo was in the studio adding congas to something one day. And then that, they just whipped that thing together and had Bobo play whatever he played on it. And it's all over the place timeline. I mean, it's got some weird time signatures and it moves around. But I remember being sent that version and I just thought, what the hell is this? I was yeah. like, well, what is this? And, uh, and I thought, oh, this is a great B-side. It's a classic thing to add on the Japanese import. You know, it's a little weird. Yeah, and suffice to say, when when Chris wanted it on the track listing, I thought I thought it was like, why? What are you talking about? Like it just didn't make any sense to me. But but I had much, you know, I was I was far more concerned with the album cover than the second to last song on the album not being my favorite. Oh yeah, so that was that was Chris's idea then, right? To go ahead with that, and it was like an old seventies. Where did it come from again? Was yeah. it not not like not? It was the it was the, it was the July seventy six the bicentennial. Hustler magazine cover <laughs> is what that picture is. That's right. And and it's you know I I just I one thing I've never wavered on one degree is how much I thought that that was going to destroy the record and kill it commercially, and it did. I mean yeah. it was a really big issue, 
that um, at the time, you know, we tell ourselves, well, it's not that big a deal. The record's great. It'll stand up over time. And of course, the album stands up over time because, as you said, it's a huge album. It, it is very big and it's very ambitious and we're going in a lot of directions. And the fact of the matter is, in 1994, if we had had a, an album cover and a title and just a just a, a, a theme to put the album around, like a sensibility to it that made any sense at all, yeah, I think that album... I think that album would have been the album that established the Black Crows as long-term, but okay, this, this is the real deal. This is one of those bands. And, and instead, I think that not having any sort of imaging and thematic hangers to put that music on, I think it, I think it really did more damage than anything. Now, long-term, right now, that doesn't matter. The context is pointless. But at the time, you put it, when you do put an album out, you want to have a very cohesive, you know, statement to make, if you will, or a story around it. And when you think about the albums, the great albums of all time, when you look at the cover, you think of the name of the album, you think about what was going on at the time, you know, they tend to they tend to all make a little bit more sense than, you know, a bikini cover with some pubic hair from Hustler magazine and a word that nobody really understood the definition of and, you know, all those things uh, just added up to a, a bit of confusion and not just the public side, but within the own band, none of us understood what Chris was trying to say with that cover or the title. I didn't mind the title as much as the image that went along with it. Yeah. And who, whose idea was to uh, was it to clean it up with uh, just the black background eventually? Well, I mean, Big James wouldn't carry the album. I mean, you know, Best Buy and Target and Walmart and all those kind of big box stores, they wouldn't carry it. So. Yeah. You know, the label was like, well, by God, we, we have to be in those stores. And by the time we got the blacked out version and put it out, you know, the, the moment had come and passed. And, you know, there's other elements, too. I mean, I mean, Alternative Rock had taken over the airwaves in the United States at that point, And they didn't jump on the album. If they had, you know, a lot of things could have gone very differently. But every band has got an album like that where it's just, for whatever reason, it didn't add up. The industry shifts under your feet constantly but but the problem with the market was all you know that was all uh self-sabotaging wounds that wasn't that wasn't the industry doing anything that was us making some really bad decisions you just reminded me of a cool part in the book where uh you talked about you know speaking of alternative music you talked about how much robinson hated it and uh how he kind of you know showed that in the lyrics so like p25 london is that line about eddie vetter being uh an empty bottle savior yeah, you telling that story about him hating the fact that Eddie Vedder was often photographed with a wine bottle, but the wine bottle was empty, and Chris Robinson hated that. And so in P25 London in the chorus, it goes, what is it, empty bottle, saviors they crawl, right? Yeah, it's, yeah something like that. And it, you know, and it's like, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't know that he hated Eddie Vedder, he just hated that other... I think he really had a problem with the fact that all the Seattle bands were getting all of the attention. They took all the air of the room. Yeah. And so that, that anger of just going to be pointed wherever he could point it. You know, it's just one of those things. It, 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 it's, it's an example of, uh, of, of his anger coming out and instead of just addressing it and figuring it out. I mean, all this stuff in hindsight, like the band would never sit around and just say, man, this sucks that we were, you know, we were this, we were the band for a minute there and then and then Nirvana came away and everyone forgot about us that's a normal thing to feel and we would never just admit that and go okay well we're in it for the long haul anyway and then just get on with our day we just acted like we didn't care and then it stayed underneath the surface yeah. and came out in things like that you know it's um, 
we we were we were not very well equipped, if you will, with coping skills and mechanisms, and uh, and certainly not blessed with an ability to be vulnerable and honest in front of each other. Yeah. Uh, everybody had varying levels of, of uh, skills in that regard, but the culture of the band was not one. You know, if you came up, if you opened your heart and said, "This is what scares me. This is what I'm worried about," you were most likely going to get crushed for it. And 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 what a terrible thing that is, isn't it? It's 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 really soul destroying. I mean, you know, the, the, the everybody's central nervous systems were, were battered from day one. And another thing that's important for people to, to remember or understand is when you get to a place when the you know the career's going well, we had great management. We were given great advice. Yeah, and we had a vision, and we had a manager who could execute any create any vision we had. He still make it happen. And um, but then when the you know when all the the dysfunction and, and the pain doesn't come from doesn't come from oh man the lead singer of the Black Crows doesn't like my idea it's my friend is angry that I even had an idea you know it, it's yeah. way beyond just it's you know I wasn't a drummer who met a singer in the want ads of a paper we were roommates and best friends and and then one day you know like wait hold on a second why do you suddenly have no respect for our relationship anymore and. You know why do you why do you think everyone here works for you? And that's a common thing in bands, but I don't think it's a common thing in bands that start as everybody's friends. Again, at some point, I realized why well, I have to just change the way I am in this because you know you can you can talk reason to somebody who's not reasonable all day, and eventually you realize oh this is pointless. I'm just I'm just talking myself in circles here, and then you get on with it. But it takes a lot longer to do that when you're of a mindset of we're all on the same team, we're all, let's all get on the same page. And when you have a willingness to sacrifice, um, it's a natural thing for you to give your own for the whole, for the betterment of the collective. It's hard to understand that other people literally don't think that way and don't even understand it. Yeah. And so other members of the band really struggled admitting, you know, it's hard to just admit like, oh, wait, we are on opposite planets here, you know? <laughs> It's not cool to sit around when you're in your early 20s and talk about values and ethics. That's not what bands do, but it's a really important part of it. If you want to, if you want that band to last, you know, at the very least, you better have enough respect for each other. Uh, and you, you know, you can work on the friendship and the love later, but the respect has to be there. And once the respect is gone, then everybody's just spinning their wheels. I absolutely agree. And again, you told the story from a very courageous and objective uh, standpoint, and I, th- I thought it was fantastic. Like I said, as a Black Crows fan, I didn't know half that stuff. I couldn't believe it. I didn't hear it in the music, thankfully, but uh, yeah, well done, man. Really well done. Well, I, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. So, Steve, we talked earlier about the songs that make your skin vibrate. I was wondering if maybe you could give me two or three of those songs that uh, move you emotionally. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a million of those, and, and if you ask me tomorrow, I'd have five different songs that occurred to me. So oh, for sure. You know, the good, great thing about music is wherever you are, there's different songs in your head, or you know, that come to mind. Um, I I would say, you know. I can't hear Marquee Moon by television without going on a, uh, just going out to outer space. Okay. Never. Yeah. Um, that's a staple. You know, if I, and if I'm, if I'm in a, I can put that on when I'm in a great mood. I can put that on when I'm in a bad mood. It, it that song takes me anywhere I need to go and always has. Um, there's a band called Illiterate Light. They're from Harrisonburg, Virginia. Their first album just came out last fall. And, uh, and I love their album. And they've got, 
bunch of songs that they've released on EPs and stuff um, over the years. Kind of a DIY thing, but they're on Atlantic Records now. But Illiterate Light has a song called uh, American Boy that is fantastic. It really gets me going. I, and I, I, I like I like everything they do, but that song in particular really it gets me. I, anytime I hear it, it really it, it's very, very, very moving. Um, let's see. There's, uh, you know, I heard ACDC riff rap yesterday and felt like I was seven years old. You know, just <laughs> like anything was possible when riff rap played. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so we can we can go all day, but the first three things that occurred to me were television and ACDC, both songs I think from 1977, and then a song from 2019. So I like it. I'm good with that. I like it. I like it. Well done, man. So, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. I enjoyed the chat. Right on, brother. Appreciate it. Take care. You too. The new book is Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows and uh, Trigger Hippie. Also, the new album, Full Circle and Then Some, last October came out. Check those out. Steve Gorman from the Black Crows. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate it, man. Cheers. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Steve Gorman. Until next time, folks, take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>